Welcome to Winning Slowly, a podcast about culture, technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Stephen Caradini. And I'm Chris Kreitcho. Today we're going to talk about insane pricing schemes and bad business practices, or what happens when capitalism runs completely amok and starts to do insane things. We're also going to talk about Ken Ham, culture wars, the times for political silence, and how Stephen just doesn't want to talk about this. <laughs> After I get over my uncomfortableness, we'll talk about link rot and how we lose parts of the internet and how that's a very strange phenomenon for people who are unfamiliar with the, the intricacies of the internet and also sometimes people who are familiar with the intricacies of the internet. So starting off, there's a blog post that made the rounds a few weeks ago, a guy named Brent Simmons, who's a software developer, and he's run his all of his personal websites through a company called Network Solutions for many, many years. All of a sudden, he gets an email from them telling him, hey, we're opting you into these neat new services we provide. And apropos of nothing. Apropos of nothing. And here, your credit card will be billed $1,850 for the first year of service on the date your program goes live. After that, you'll be billed $1,350 on every subsequent year from... Wait, what? Wait, hang on. <laughs> Did you just say thousands of dollars in an opted-in service to which I had no interest? Well, it's not even an opt-in. It's an auto-opt-in. Right, right. They opted him in. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's totally nuts. Like, Insane. Crazy. What? It is a total abuse of the customer uh, um, uh, customer business contract. Makes also, no sense. It, yeah, that's the thing that boggled my mind, and I think a lot of other people's minds about this, is I'm sure there's somewhere where this makes sense, but right off the top of my head, how does opting your customers into these kinds of charges seem like a good move business-wise? Anybody with any customer service savvy at all can just see this exploding as well it should. We just opted you in for almost $2,000 the first year and almost $1,500 every year after that without even asking you. This is bound to explode in your face as people become outraged at this. Yeah, partially, I can see that, oh, this person has been a customer a long time. They have some significant amount of services with us. Maybe they would like this particular thing. It's kind of expensive. Hey, would you be interested in this? Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. What do you think? But just deciding, oh, hey, we're going to snark you, and we're gonna, you're going to find this <laughs> on your credit card bill in approximately six months. Right. Like, that's just not cool. Like, that's the sort of thing that makes us hate cable companies. Right. <laughs> and the thing that boggled my mind most about it was they thought they were doing him a... Well, they talked like they were doing him a favor by adding these extraordinary charges to his account every year. He, of course, immediately started moving all of his accounts away from them. But this was so ridiculous that his first reaction was, is, is this a phishing email is this a, a scam this is this has got to be a scam right yeah. no self-respecting like company it. would ever do this and he goes out and reaches out to them on twitter and they say no this is totally real of course <laughs> what? yeah and so so this is obviously very strange from an anecdotal perspective but from a winning slowly perspective a long-range 
look at this. This is a bizarre sort of anti-logical move from, you know, the history of how we've seen the internet work. Like, I'm subscribed to a Twitter feed called Free Bad Press, which is literally just a business-shaming account. Like, <laughs> if, you, if you know this person, um, you can email them bad things that businesses do to you, and they will shame them on Twitter. Um, and sometimes they will get responses from, you know, these companies. Like, this is something that happens in the internet era. Like, you can't hide your stupid, like, customer service flaws anymore. And, and we so, kind of... Go ahead. So I, I just... That's what's fascinating to me so far about this, is that it seems like they are aware... And they just don't care because they even reached back on Twitter and said, right. oh, yeah, this is a thing. <laughs> right. But And this is the kind of thing that you expect old companies who are not new media savvy to do. You expect United Airlines to do this kind of crazy thing. Yeah. You expect them to be blindsided when they get smacked in the face on Twitter. This is an Internet company. Yeah. They exist to provide solutions on the internet. How in the world do you not realize that this is going to explode in your face? Yeah, so from a, a longer range perspective, is this like, are we gonna start seeing internet companies become like the evil empire? Like not talking about, you know, content and data and <laughs> privacy and all that, but just from a, you know, from a corporation perspective, are we gonna start seeing more of this like we see with airlines, like you said, which is like, this is the way things are. If you want to do business in this space, you just have to put up with nonsense. Right. Is is I, that where we're going? Is that or has the internet been so entrenched in the last twenty years into business that businesses think this is okay? I think that's probably the case for one very simple reason, and that is the inevitability of greed. And there are a lot of people who have looked at the internet and thought, wow, this could solve so many problems, new communication medium, new ways of doing things, decentralization. And these are all great ideas in a lot of ways, but they mistake the one fundamental that underlies everything that touches business, that touches politics, that touches technology. And that's the simple reality. And we'll come back to this again and again. We've already come back to it in previous episodes. People are broken. The internet doesn't fix people. The internet doesn't make greed go away. Now, the one way in which the internet can help us fix this is, well, here's your free bad press. You're going to get publicly shamed, and rightly so, and we're going to try and lose you some customers now because you're acting like a jerk. And that's a, a good thing and a benef benefit of the web, but it doesn't change the basic innate tendencies of people and therefore of capitalist companies although there is some you know mitigation that you can do i mean i think that you know pointing out that we can indeed get large swaths of the internet mad at companies like godaddy when they do right. things that we don't like or you know um, other internet companies or other you know terrestrial companies right um i think that they're that that people still do respond to um, you know, to their bottom line. I mean, we are not so broken as to not even remember that we have a bottom line. Basic um, self-interest. Right, right. So, um, but I just, I just think it's fascinating that this is, um, at least in, in my estimation, the first time that we've seen something that's a blatantly like old media terrestrial company sort of screw job in right. 
in a, a space that we would expect people to be like, oh yeah, we understand that we have to email and work with you and like, right. I mean, cause I mean, people working at this company, you know, may have been part of the people who were, you know, threatening to leave GoDaddy if they didn't do, you know, clean up their act and stuff a couple right. years ago. So, you know, it's, it's very bizarre to me that like we've reached a stage with the internet where internet companies are no longer that much different than regular companies in some instances obviously there are plenty of businesses terrestrial and internet based that are doing things in really ethical and really novel Absolutely. and really interesting ways so i'm not saying that like oh the internet's broken and over um <laughs> but i just think it's fascinating that we are seeing and this is one of my my big interests overall is that we're starting to see the internet become a part of society right like we it's are just normalizing we are not interesting anymore as the internet is not a novel thing it's part of society and so as we start to um you know get over the fact that like stuff is happening yo um <laughs> we're, we're gonna start to see more things like this and so right. i would be interested to see if companies that are terrestrially based see some of the pushback that happens with this internet-based thing and and start to modify some of their business practices mm. or at least try to mask them better because like <laughs> if you're a terrestrial based company now pretty much everyone knows about the internet like right. even even universities are starting to hire like internet professors <laughs> like this is how fast we have made it like even the slowest moving organizations that we have in the world and I work for university and I love universities and they move slow um, but you know so we we are definitely normalizing the internet and I hope that, you know, terrestrially based companies, which I think will always exist, um, will start to draw some some sort of sense about things, even if like their marketing person goes to them and says, guys, this horrible thing just happened to somebody else. Let's not have that happen. To <laughs> Let's us. not do that. Yeah. And I think the biggest opportunity here is for companies to recognize that consumer feedback is valuable that yeah. hearing from the people you're providing services to is valuable yeah. and that it's not something to be feared or avoided, but it allows you to do your job better and earn better customer satisfaction and earn more long-term loyalty from your customers. Yeah. I think the other side of the coin, although the internet is becoming normalized, one of the strange things that a lot of we techie types can forget is that in some ways the social media we all inhabit and the pushbacks against GoDaddy and things like that. In a lot of ways, those are still very small movements compared to the world at large. Yeah. My wife and my parents, all of whom are pretty tech savvy, they're not tech geeks, but they're tech savvy. Right. I think all that flew right past them. They didn't even know what was going on. Sometimes we exist in this echo chamber and we just don't realize that all these things that we're super excited about or super angry about or super passionate about in general are just not things that matter to a majority of the population. And so on the one hand, you have the normalization of the internet. And on the other hand, you still have this basic underlying reality that it's an echo chamber and things bounce around like this blog yeah. post by Simmons did. My wife didn't hear about it. My parents didn't hear about it. Most of my friends didn't hear about it. And those are the people 
network solutions can continue to get away with doing ridiculous things too if they don't change their behavior because they didn't even hear about this yeah. and many of them aren't savvy enough to know that oh i don't have to keep doing business with this terrible company and this isn't pro for the course par for the course this is broken i can go somewhere else and they won't treat me like this then again at the same time a lot of the those people aren't using something like network solutions which is a, it's true. a big you know sort of high level thing that people who need very specialized results would right. work on so sometimes an echo chamber is small enough that it hits everyone in this particular market even if it doesn't have any impact on the world at large um, and furthermore you know those echo chambers are going to get larger as more and more it's people true. do more and more of their work on the internet even if they're based at terrestrial companies it's true so, so speaking of echo chambers yeah, that is a true thing. So the echo chamber of the Christians versus science community, um, which is growing larger and larger, uh, is, you know, not my favorite thing. Um, the Ken Ham versus uh, Bill Nye, the fact that there's a versus in here is like the first problem. <laughs> um, Ken Ham versus Bill Nye, political, scientific, academic debate thing apparently happened somewhere at some time and they talked about some things uh the they reason... should tell everyone how steven felt about the whole thing <laughs> i was just really unenthused like it was one it was a story that wrote itself like as soon as it was announced i knew exactly what was going to happen i knew exactly that like science people were going to come away being like science and christian people were going to come away saying wow the gospel was really preached and, you know, and it wasn't going to be any good for either of them, either right. of them. It was going to be a big pat on the back for both parties. Um, and, you know, moderates like myself were going to be like, great, we just made more polarization. How Woo! exciting. Uh, right. Yeah. And so it's it was a really frustrating thing um, to me that this this even happened. Um, I mean, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense from a Christian perspective. Um, because, you know, unless you have the opinion that the world is something to be antagonized, um, or that the world is antagonistic towards us, um, and that therefore we should respond with antagonism, um, there's just really not a lot of good that I can see coming from this. Um, and furthermore, like, it's not super great for science, even if, you know, quote unquote, science wins this debate. Because as one of my friends pointed out in a blog post that I'll link in the, um, the credits, eventually polarization is just going to keep being bad for science. Right. Um, it's, it's not going to win over Christians if it keeps being <laughs> such polarizing rhetoric. And right. even though Christian, you know, Christian culture or the moral majority or you know, 50s style Christian America doesn't exist anymore, there's still a ton of people who identify as Christians Right, and, and a ton who identify as young Earth creationists. Yeah, um, and and they vote and stuff, and so <laughs> they and live stuff. in Texas and stuff. Like these things are important, right? And I think that the challenge here, and really the the big reason we want to talk about this, is because on the one hand, what's going on here could have been an admirable move. It could have been a move in which instead of simply talking past each other, Ham and Nye dealt with the really fundamental 
challenge in this conversation, which is dealing with the baseline assumptions we have about reality. And Ham got there in some ways and Nye got there in some ways, but mostly they both pandered to their audiences. And so I saw my young earth creationist fundamentalist friends on Twitter going, score one for Ham! And my acquaintances and friends on Twitter who are either old earth creationist Christians or many more of them agnostic or atheist evolutionists going, score one for Nye! And the problem I see with debates like this is all they really tend to do is energize whichever base is there, which in some sense is valuable to the people in the debates. I mean, I think both Ham and Nye got what they wanted in some sense, which was a bigger stage and more time spent on their views. But did it advance anything in any way? Well, probably not. Now, I'm going to say I'm happy that Ham tried to get at the gospel somewhat. Good. Uh, people who know me well are not going to be surprised that I disagree with Ham on many of his particulars. But what's more interesting to me is the approach question. Is this a valuable way of engaging culture as Christians? And for that matter, is it a valuable way of engaging culture as scientists? And what if we're Christians who are scientists and want to engage culture that way? And I think my answer is, well, it depends. There are times when debates can be effective. There are times when debates can be useful ways of focusing the issues and showing where the disagreements lie, and if done well, even persuading some of your opponents. Yeah. But there are also times when debates can just be a platform for mere demagoguery, and when they can do nothing other than continue to provoke hostility. And so one of the most interesting questions to me is, how do we, especially we as Christians, think through when is it a time to be silent in the realm of politics, in the realm of public debate? And when is it a time to be bold? What are the delineating factors for us in terms of deciding which is which? Because I think we agree that there is a need for both, though you and I, by dint of personality and background and other things, right. often differ about when which time is which. Yeah. No, it's, it's really intriguing um, to think about how do we engage with the world? And you're in a seminary, and so you're very much um, wanting to engage with the world in a particular um, vocationally Christian way. Um, and I'm in the academy, and so I'm engaging vocationally with the world in a less Christian way, although I'm still very much publicly a Christian. I'm running this podcast. Right. I have a poetry website called Gospelized that we'll talk about later. Like it's 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 not like I'm trying to hide the fact that I'm a Christian, but we just deal with these things in very different ways. And so right. I'm I'm always trying to make sure that I'm not um, being too too passive. Um, right. And I think that as we've talked about before, one of your concerns is that. You, you push too hard sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and so that middle ground is, is really difficult to, to, to sit in. And so mm -hmm. especially um, as we start to think about where we sit in history, um, I think there's, there's some considerations there that you were talking to me about. Right. And I think one of the real challenges is that it's not just shooting for a middle ground, though a lot of times we do need to shoot for a middle ground, but it's also shooting for when to swing for which fence, so right. to speak. Right. That there are times when your tendency toward just shutting up and 
praying for people and loving people and engaging in relationships and demonstrating things that way is vastly more effective. And on the other hand, there are times when you really need to swing for the fences and go all in and deal with whatever the consequences are and be willing to take the punch on the face, as it were, for standing for what is good and right and true. And then there are times when you need to be gentle and gracious somewhere in the middle and take a stand, but quietly. And discerning those is a, a matter of wisdom. And I think it's a matter of discipline in the sense that it's not something you can just lay down a hard and fast rule and say, well, when it's like this, do this. Right. But it's something that you have to be sensitive, as you were saying, to our cultural moment, mm -hmm. to our personal tendencies, and to our specific audiences. And our personal situation. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, on something like abortion that has like this long entrenched history, mm -hmm. um, we're reaching a point where, you know, all conversation about it is is so polarized that it's useless. Um, and, huh. and so I, here's where we get to disagree, actually. And well, to me, there's there's a point where um, it, it just like the two sides are so firmly entrenched that we're going to vote about it over and over again. People are going to vote the same way, um, in my opinion, um, based on, you know, where I've I've conversations I've had, where I've seen mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, something like that, um, I, I don't see it as particularly profitable to right. have big conversations about, whereas something like, you know, the, the healthcare, um, situation that we have is something that is profitable because it goes beyond just the healthcare problem and starts to talk about like, how do we view humans? What is the important thing of humans? And I know, and I know that that's where like the abortion like argument wants to go. But there's so many roadblocks in the way. There's so much polarized rhetoric that we can't go there anymore. So even though that's the end of all conversations, in my opinion, for Christian rhetoric is what does this make us think about humans? I think that there's still a lot of fertile ground left in the healthcare debate. Um, which is tangentially and sometimes directly related to the abortion debate. Right. Um, but I think that that's a place and that's a situation where there's still so much uncertainty, so much moving around, so much like things that Democrats and Republicans are willing to give up mm -hmm. um, because there's still not like, you know, there's we get these reports all the time of like, oh, the Democrats are defecting on this point or, oh, the Republicans are being way more hardcore than we thought they were going to be. Or, right. oh, Republicans are swinging this way. Like there's still a lot of motion there. And so it's still a fertile moment for us to be talking about like, OK, well, let's step back. Let's not think about money. Let's think about people. Like, what does this say about people? Like, right. So what do, what do you think about abortion particularly? So I would actually argue almost exactly the inverse of that in some ways, and this is where it gets fun, because I would say that what we've seen, and going to a winning slowly perspective, is that by steadfastly and increasingly wisely, and that matters a lot, steadfastly and increasingly wisely interacting on the question, I think the Christian position, the conservative Christian position on abortion has proven winsome over time. And it hasn't been by flashbang moments. It's been more by the steady march of let's be winsome, let's be thoughtful, let's be generous and gracious and kind. And yet let's point to those deeper human issues. Let's point to questions of the humanity of 
all the parties involved. Let's point to the consequences of abortion for all the parties involved. And let's take concrete actions in terms of providing support for women considering abortions, in terms of making adoption much more widely available. And there's been a yeah, flourishing remnant. And it's not just that we need it, it's that we're doing it. There's been a massive flourishing of movement toward adoption in the Christian community in the last decade, and it's beautiful. Uh, it's, it's had its dark sides occasionally, you know, as all things are wont to do. But on the whole, it's been a really, really wonderful change. And I think taking that kind of perspective in the long run on really contentious, painful issues can be the right thing to do. The trick is discerning how to do it and when to do it. Right. And so for the healthcare debate, for example, I think it is good. Well, wait, let me let me say something about the oh, abortion yeah, go thing. For it. Um, I think there's a difference there between what you're saying and between, you know, uh, you know, Pat Robertson debating um, the head of Planned Parenthood. Yes, like, I heartily agree. And so I, I totally agree with what you're saying um, in that moving in real, like actionable ways towards mm -hmm. solutions and, and showing those to the community at large as like our response to this issue is right. way more in line with what I'm interested in doing. Right. I was talking specifically about like, having you know these sorts of public debates <laughs> yeah and i think that's a fair distinction i think that gets at the point we both want to make here which is frankly these kinds of debates don't do a lot generally there are kinds of debates that do and there are people who might be well equipped to have that kind of debate even on an issue as contentious as abortion and to do it well i just don't think ken ham yeah. is necessarily the best representative well, of us on this point and i certainly oh pat robertson don't please don't get me started <laughs> i could rant all just, day about that i one. was i was just saying just saying but, no you're right though and yeah. that's an important distinction is to say there are times and places for debate but there are also manners of debate and people who are well equipped for debate and people in times and places that are not yeah no i think that it's uh it's helpful to keep in mind in this situation something like the screw tape letters Mm. Um, which is all about how to foment dissension and create <laughs> right. confusion. And um, it, it's worthy to think about, you know, are we really keeping the first principles in mind? Right. Um, are we really trying to tie this to how does this relate to humans and how do humans relate to God mm -hmm. um, from a Christian perspective and from a secular perspective? Um, how do we engage with uh these ideas that are very different than us that we don't like or understand. Um, right. And so how do we keep that dialogue open? Um, because I, I'm very, like, very um, empathetic with, you know, positions that are not, um, you know, the standard Christian one, as I have been on the other side of the standard Christian opinion of the issue several times. <laughs> so. Right. And I think one of the things there is to remember neighbor love to remember that jesus tells us that the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself and that includes the way we engage our rhetoric our attitude toward those with whom we disagree and to recognize you know to get back to the ken ham bill nye debate that most 
non-Christian scientists are not out there cackling maniacally about how they can destroy the <laughs> worldviews of Christians. Right. And even granting spiritual realities that go beyond what we typically think about or talk about in our culture, the reality is that, by and large, most people are not interested in some kind of conspiratorial tearing down of each other. It's just basic disagreement and that disagreement doesn't imply enmity and doesn't have to imply enmity yeah. and i would really like to see us embrace the ethic of christ that is willing to call unrighteousness out and willing to stand boldly on it but is also willing to stand silently before pilate when accused and no matter how much accused simply stay silent we need to learn that discipline and that wisdom and there's a couple thoughtful blog posts on that which we'll link in the show notes yeah Speaking of echo chamber, let's talk about how when you find yourself in an echo chamber where there is nothing left. Um, done, done, we, done. Yeah. So I was trying to move my poetry website um, called gospelized.com um, to a new server um, because I wanted to leave GoDaddy um, partially because of their ads, which they have since changed. More, more power to them, uh, but also because they had weird outages and I was, I, I didn't get that. So, um, so I wanted to move stuff away and, um, I was using WordPress and I was, I, I exported, um, my main files from my music blog, independent clauses, but for whatever reason, I didn't get around to exporting, um, gospelized files. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know why. Um, maybe I was busy or something, but as a result, because I didn't understand the way that WordPress handles files when, you know, WordPress like erased my account or whatever, like I just lost all of, all of those, those poems. Like they just didn't exist on the internet anymore. This is a really strange thing for us because we're used to this notion of I put it on the internet, it's permanent. And in fact, a lot of the rhetoric we hear is anything you post on the internet will haunt you forever. And in many ways, that's kind of true with certain services, etc. But sometimes you forget to export things from WordPress and you just copy the files from the server and those aren't the same thing. And then you're confused and sad because multiple years of poetry is gone yeah, there forever. Were, there was some weeping and the gnashing of teeth indeed. Uh, but what was really interesting to me about this is that we even went and used the Wayback Machine to scrub like the few times that Wayback had decided that Gospelized was valuable enough to index. Um, and so we got some of it back. So it is true to an extent that some things live forever. Um, because what Way did we recover? 10 poems? Uh, I think it was closer to like 20. Sweet! Um, yeah, it was closer to 20. And Honestly, it was some of the better ones because I think they, you know, indexed it to like traffic or something. I don't know. But it was some of the better ones that were left. And I had some copies um, of the best ones saved on my computer. So I didn't lose like, you know, the best things I've ever written. Um, but it was still it was still very interesting to me to see that there was this interplay between, um, yes, some things will live forever, but you don't know what they are. Right. You, you have no real way of knowing like what's going to find its way to a permanent home on the internet and right. what is sort of this ephemeral sort of thing. Um, and I think this is really fascinating in, in something that we had talked about 
talking about, but we never got to, was this idea of the stream and how this really, like, this kind of ephemeral moment for each piece, and then right. it kind of just disappears into um, kind of obscurity, ubiquity, um, just kind of the everythingness of the internet. Mm -hmm. And so all of that is stored, but in terms of, like, people going and looking back at it, like, it doesn't really exist. Right. I mean, Finding... As we talked about in our first episode, finding a tweet from a year ago, oh. <laughs> good luck. Oh, it's the worst. I mean, and we just switched from, you know, using uh, Facebook chat to do all of our planning to something based on app.net. Um, I use Project Rory and Chris, what do you use? I use Thread1. Yeah, so we just moved there because we can we can search all of our stuff. And so in Facebook, we'd have to scroll up and up and up and up and up. And it was just clunky. And so it's this, the internet has this very strange and unusual way of interacting with the types of thing that we want. Right. Um, so it's, it's kind of like a library, but it's kind of not. Um, in that it's it's it is indexable, um, and we're, we're acknowledging Ish. acknowledging that the deep web exists, and we will definitely <laughs> right. have to talk about that sometime because I'm fascinated right. by it. But in general, web pages like the type that we're talking about, they're indexable, but they're not really like commonplace. They're not right at hand. Right. They're not, and they're not permanent. Yeah. They feel permanent, but they're not actually permanent. Yeah. So we have this weird like interaction between um how does something um disappear or how does something stay alive so like if somebody right. if somebody gets you know quoted back to over and over again then that thing can become ubiquitous in the same way that people quoting an academic article over and over again mm -hmm. makes it ubiquitous um, and then it's you know it's going to be reblogged and reposted and it's much less likely to die off um so in some ways um you know, these blog posts that are, you know, not necessarily um, all that interesting or my poems that I p apparently didn't find enough value in to export correctly. Um, <laughs> they they are sort of like, you know, public domain books. We know they exist. We don't know what they are. We don't know where they are. Right. I mean, they're, they're just part of the ephemera of the world. You go to right. random bookstores and find them. It's kind of like using stumble upon, right? You never know what corner <laughs> of the internet you're going to get to. And I love stumble upon. Right. That will come up repeatedly in this blog or in this podcast. One of the things that becomes strange is, so let's assume that you did write a blog post that got tons of traffic. And I can think of a couple examples where this has happened. And then... Yeah, like the, the marriage post that got like 26 million views in two weeks. <laughs> right. Cheers, mate. Right. And then... uh you decide that you want to stop being on the internet for whatever reason. And you take down all of your material on purpose. And all of a sudden, every link to your site goes nowhere. You end up on a page that says, sorry, we don't know how to resolve this link. Because, 404. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, you're in this weird world in which all these links exist. And there's a specific term for this. It's called link rot. Links exist, and the content may or may not anymore. Now, this is where the internet gets weird and unlike the library. In general, unless someone burns down a library, boo, people who sacked Alexandria. Boo, boo, shaving you from 2,000 years in the future. Unless the library gets burned down, 
if it's got an index, the book is the book still exists. Maybe someone hasn't turned it back in, whatever. But the book doesn't just go away. And digital things have this ephemerality about them that physical things don't. And so as we move into this era where everything is digital, where everything is existent generally only in one place with no backup somewhere else online, we're entering an era in which I mean, archaeologists a thousand years from now could have a really hard time constructing what any of us were doing or talking about. Because oh, man, that it'll sounds all like, just be gone. That sounds like real archaeology. <laughs> it could be even worse, though, because at least they left behind tablets and books, and sometimes they got stuck in caves and yeah. dried yeah. out and stayed there for a millennium. Yeah. If all of our computers died today... There would be no way to recover yeah. the vast majority of anything you and I have ever written. It I would know. be gone permanently in a way that if we'd written it down, there might be a chance of it surviving. Now, we both live in North Carolina now, and it's humid here, so the likelihood of it surviving would be close to nil anyway. But there would be a chance. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the mythical EMP blast. Uh, right. But, yeah, and so I've thought about that before. It's really kind of intriguing that people say, like, books will cease to exist and i don't think they ever will no. like i don't think there's there's this there's still this sort of achievement of mm -hmm. having this physical book mm -hmm. and there's and there's definitely like a social achievement and a personal right. achievement emotional achievement but there's also like like a critical like knowledge-based achievement that like the things that you have to say are worthy of being put into a book form right they've and I mean, they become physical. Yeah, and I mean, this this is kind of unfortunate that there are more Tucker Max books in the world than my books, but you know, that's the sort of you know representation <laughs> of our culture, right? Like, this is the thing that we value in terms of what is entertaining or funny or whatever. Right. Um, and you know, so it's I think that that's good that we still have this mentality that like the the book is still a crowning achievement. It's mm -hmm. still really really valuable that you know authors get physical books printed right um, and it's hard and i think it should be hard and i think that's that's as we move out of this phase to say like the only way you can make a career as a writer is to do a published book i mean there are definitely going to be people who are able to publish ebooks who are able to publish you know all sorts of weird material cory doctorow style and right um but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, their stuff, and I'm still talking about myself here, um, is, <laughs> is, is right. ready for prime time, you know, ready for right. historical permanent analysis. Right. Maybe right? it's good that your blog posts and my blog posts can maybe just disappear and archaeologists won't find them. Right. Because at some point, if they are good enough, someone's going to say, hey, time to come up to the big leagues. Let's write a book about this. Right. And, and let's print it. Yeah. And so I, I feel like that's still a good thing that like mm -hmm. this, this idea of link rot, which seems so horrible prima facie is actually kind of a way that we police what's good in our culture and what's mm. super valuable to the ways that we think about ourselves uh, because a publishing house is not going to like, you know, throw money at every, you know, every person that wants to write a book. Right. Um, and we see that as kind of like, you know, a rough bag or, you know, kind of a harsh way of doing things, but it's, it's a way that we, you know, and I, I mean, 
And I'm sure that there are some publishers who still think that they are the arbiters of society and culture, <laughs> um, but in a way different than what they usually think about how they are right. arbiters of good taste in society. They really are. They really are still, you know, this is what is valuable to us. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the idea that the number of books is in some ways proliferating and in other ways shrinking is a really strange, you know, way to think about how our culture views itself right now. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the interesting aspects of that, and perhaps the most challenging one, is that Blink Rock can happen on accident. Mm -hmm. Because let's say you had a publisher who was interested in all of that poetry and said, we want to publish a collection of this. Whoops, it's yeah. gone. Yeah. And so that's where, on the one hand, it can be a beautiful thing. And on the other hand, it'd be really nice if we had a way to back it up, yeah. some of it, so that all of your poems didn't go away forever. I know, and that's just my bad. I should have personally backed things up. Right, but it's, what happens if that server was gone and for whatever reason, GoDaddy had been delinquent in making backups? There, right. there are so many ways in which you can lose things. Right. I think it behooves us to be mindful of that and things that we do care about ourselves to make the effort to back up, to set aside in a place where they can be recovered. And maybe, just maybe, the things we really like to physically print off and mail to our parents in a different state. <laughs> uh, yes, I definitely have printed things off and posted them on walls. So, yeah, it's it's a really fascinating concept, and I'm really interested in how how that tiny little thing of link rot. Um, we didn't even talk about link shorteners and all that. <laughs> but, um, that tiny little thing exposes this huge like way that we think about our culture. Right. Um, and so that's that's just that's winning slowly right there. It's fascinating. Um, well, uh, thanks for listening to the third episode of Winning Slowly. Um, the song that our, was our intro uh, was The South by the Duke of Norfolk off his new album Birds Fly South. Remember that all of our content, apart from that song, all of our content, is available under a Creative Commons attribute license, which means you can do whatever you want with it as long as you say where you got it. And we hope you do make crazy things with this. If you want to make a mashup of us sounding stupid, we're okay with that. Totally. I've been Chris Kreitcho. And I am and will be Stephen Caradini. Thanks for listening.